I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. In episode 7, we sit down with rock climbing legend John Long. Long is most well known as one of the Stone Masters, a group of California rock climbers who, fueled primarily by LSD and Jimi Hendrix, pushed the sport to risky and adventurous new heights in the 1970s. John Long's list of rock climbing accomplishments occupies a place of magnitude that borders on myth. A big wall pioneer, Long was the first person to ever climb Yosemite's most iconic route, the nose, in a single day. He also owns the second one-day ascent of El Cap, a five-hour blast on the west face, climbed the first 513-rated route in the world, and put up visionary test pieces like Astro Man that were years, if not decades, ahead of their time. Now in his late 60s, John is a tremendously insightful, reflective, and philosophically inclined man. Our chat shines the light on John Long the person, and he talks openly, honestly, and at length about a life well lived, as well as his regrets, epiphanies, struggles, and ultimate wisdom. I've always found John's writing to be unflinchingly honest, self-deprecating, and stunningly beautiful. Sitting down to talk with one of rock climbing's biggest heroes was an extreme honor and tremendously enlightening. I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did. You write openly about your adoption mm-hmm. at an early age. Do you think that influenced the trajectory of your life? Yeah, it's a that's a tricky one. I think it's uh, the the experience of adopted people is vast. Like there's probably not one universal or or e- even typical experience that people have. It's hard to talk about with any kind of authenticity. It's hard. It's hard for me to talk about adoption in the round. Because I only know about my own, and I was adopted super early, right? My like my parents had a couple months old, right? Pardon me, a couple months old. No, a couple days old. A couple days, like old. right from straight straight out of the hospital, right? So I, I never knew any other people, and they and so it, it 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 was at least psychologically normalized from the beginning, and it was never any kind of big issue. I knew, I always knew, and it was just an accepted kind of thing. I, I never even thought about it, right? Mm-hmm. Had I thought about it it probably would have been easier to sort out like the difficult and unspoken. Like it was sort of, there was still a thing about bastard children and, you know, people, have babies at a wedlock and stuff when I was born, you know, in the 50s. So it wasn't, you didn't openly discuss all that stuff. At least we didn't. But uh, you probably should have. Not not in terms of getting, you know, it doesn't have necessarily have to be some kind of heavy thing, but just talk. Just talk about what what's real or what's true about the thing is right. the fact that I came from a completely different place. Honor the situation. Yeah. So to speak. Well, just look at what's true. You yeah. know, that's in my experience. The royal road to sanity and balance is what's real, what's true. The tricky part for me, looking back on it, was not having anything to do with the institution of adoption. Like I never thought myself in shameful terms or any of that stuff. I mean, it was just I was just a kid and just growing up. What was tricky was. Although, you know, I'm like as Caucasian as you can get, and my, both my parents were that way. But what was tricky was I was genetically and psychologically predisposed to be ex- the exact opposite of them. How so? 
my dad was a doctor, a scientist type guy, you know, conservative, not creative, sort of right-brained. My mom was a, a scholar, somebody that grew up in, in, like, both of them came from nothing, like super lower end, you know, she came from Missouri, he came from Kansas. So they didn't culturally, you know, they came from like cultural dunes. So Dust Bowl folks. Yeah. And it just happened they were both smart. So they did well because of it. But they, they culturally, they didn't grow up with any culture. You know, they, they got it just because they were bright and interested. But they weren't risk takers and they weren't physical, you know, athletic people. They're pretty conservative and not progressive by nature. Oh, and in addition to that, there were smaller people, right? And I was big. Largo. Yeah. I was, by the time I was, what, a sophomore? Freshman or sophomore in college, like I was 19 or 20, I was 6'2 and weighed 215, mm-hmm. you know, and lived in a gym my whole life. So just from a physical standpoint, I mean, I couldn't have been more different. The only thing really we had in common was race, mm-hmm. you know, weight, we were white people. But other than that, it was such a striking difference in every, in every way, psychologically, physically, everything, any descriptors you can use would have described polar opposites to my parents and myself. Right. And I had two siblings, two daughter, uh, two sisters, and they were, you know, they looked at me like I was from another planet. And I felt like that a lot of times and didn't really have any words to put to it. And uh, I, don't, I don't look at that as a bad thing. It was just what it was. Yeah. And yeah. What, what was your childhood like? I mean, you obviously left early to go yeah. to the valley and, and J-Tree, but... I, was, I went from high school straight into college. Because I was, I started the writing thing, the lit thing, before even, even uh, climbing. I was always in sports too. So the family was, it was a little wonky. Yeah, you, you know? say a screwy experience. Yeah, my dad was a little violent. You know, he had he didn't have any emotional maturity. I mean, he could do his medicine and he was great around patients and all that. But he, I don't think he had. He didn't have. He wasn't self-contained. You know, so he'd blow up all the time. And and my mom was. Uh, brain you know like a brainiac kind of she just sort of retreated into that i don't think there was much recognition as to what was going on inside anybody not that that was a typical of those times but uh you know it wasn't it wasn't a an atmosphere where you could grow up and know much about who you are because that requires some mirroring and some mentoring maybe yeah mentoring and and looking at looking closely with rigorous honesty as to what's happening what are you feeling what are you thinking what do you want to do as opposed to a Teutonic, rigid kind of, well, here's what you should do. Right. And all of those prescriptions, as far as what I should do, ran counter to everything that I... Ended up doing. Yeah, and not only ended up doing, but was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. The only thing where my itinerary sort of jibe with my parents was school. Like, they were huge on that, on education. And I was... I wasn't so much huge on educa- education as... Like in and of itself, it's, it was practical. I liked writing, and it's it was such a nebulous kind of thing to do, and I've been doing it since I was 13 or so. It only made sense to try to get some mentoring in that, you know, and to study. I mean, I looked around, and anybody else that was, if you were a dancer, if you were a car mechanic, if you were this, you always, there was no such person that just came out of the blue and started doing that stuff. The whole idea is insane to me. That but, you would, but your mom introduced you to yeah. books and writing, correct? Yeah, she 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 was actually pretty good 
at writing like expository stuff, but she she was a huge reader, right? But I, I like I just always liked the process of writing. So, and who knows? I don't even know. You know, who knows where that came from? It made sense to me. I was let me put it this way: I was intimidated. I know I wanted to do that, or I knew that I wanted to do that, but I was intimidated over the over the idea of doing it without going through a little, you know, more steps. Mm-hmm. Like I did honors English and all that stuff in high school. But that, you know, I graduated when I was 17, high school, and I just felt really young. And, and you, were, uh, you were committed to the cause, though, from an early age. Yeah, pretty writing. much. I mean, I really didn't know what else. I didn't have, it felt like I didn't have any other options because I wasn't really interested in anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as pursuing it, you know, career-wise. Right. And were your, because you left and went to the Valley, J2 first, it sounds like, and then the Valley at 16, 17. Yeah. Were your parents at peace with that or? Yeah, I, because I, I didn't get along with my dad. We fought a lot. And so it was good for the f- nuclear family that I wasn't there yeah, much. So in summertime, I was, you know, from 15 on, I was gone the whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, originally I worked on it for a, a raft exploration, you know, like, like one of those companies that takes rafts down rapids for the, you know, I worked on Salmon River and then the Grand Canyon. And then the next summer, I started climbing all the time, so I started going to Yosemite. And that, that's how it went until I was 25 or 6. Right. You know, I, I did college and grad school, and but I always had 90 days. In the summer. In the summer, and I would just go up there the day that school was out and right. I'd come back the day before it started. Yeah. And were the, your sisters older or younger? I got one. I got a psychologist older sister, mm-hmm. and I got a biologist younger one. Right. It's quite the blend. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm always curious about formative years because I look at my own life and say, in many ways, I'm who I am because of those experiences, because of how my parents treated me or didn't treat me, whatever you want to, mm-hmm. you know, call it. Do you think that has come back in your own parenting or did it influence your parenting? Well, I have two daughters. They got the science gene and they didn't get it from me. The younger one's a petroengineer and the older one's a pediatrician. They were always just crusher science people, and so I couldn't really help them out on much because right. I had no interest in that. Well, I mean, I had some, but but not a, not a whole lot. Right. But it's obvious that your daughters mean a lot to you. Oh yeah, so absolutely. You, no, I talk to them all every day, right? Or text them or something. You know, I'm I'm in contact with them all the time. Absolutely. And, well, the the older one was a crazy good athlete. She got recruited for the Olympic junior Olympic team when she was like in fourth grade, I think. Wow. Because there was a coach, an Olympic coach that taught at the private school that she went to and she could do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was a national champion, a couple of things, pole vaulting. And, but she always wanted to do this medicine thing. And when she was 18, she goes, okay, I'm going to do medicine. And she just quit doing, didn't quit doing sports, but quit doing competitive sports. Right. When I sort of expect her to just blow up in the, the whole thing. Right. right. And I, I know she could have, right. You know, she would, they were, they were both like super directed, yeah. like naturally. Well, you're, so I, you're I, very I, driven too. It seems yeah, to me. But it, they had that, and my my best policy was, I thought, was to, because I was over-micromanaged, and I hated it. By your parents? Yeah. Yeah. And that was just fear. I mean, they grew up, you know, with no future, seemingly no future and no money and all the rest of it. So you can understand they'd, they'd want to try to direct me in a way that, that would relieve them of the anxiety of wondering whether he's going to go out in the world and get lost and all that. You know, I was just overbearing mm-hmm. you know but there's reasons for that right you know comes from a place of yeah, love but i i figured my best policy with the girls was just it was to be way more hands-off with just, your daughters yeah yeah just to support whatever they wanted to do 
be around them a lot and have fun and do things and not and not try to guide them. My wife was a a big women's rights person, right? So I was I was keen. I mean, and also my first girlfriend, first serious girlfriend, Lynn Hill, right? Who was just revolutionary in terms of what females could do athletic wise, like the the magnitude of projects they could take on, which had always been like a boys' club kind of thing. So I, I knew what those sentiments were. I didn't do anything to support any of that stuff. I can't, I don't, I don't any, lay claim to being any kind of women's rights advocate because I never did anything other right. than... But you were do, cognizant of I was keenly of aware it. of what yeah. was, what was uh, on their mind, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be, with my own daughters, I didn't want to be that guy that later on they would come back and go, you know, Dad, you just you bungled this whole thing, right? So I, a, hand, a, a hands-off strategy I thought was, it's really sort of not, it's not so much what, what you do, but what you don't do. You know, let them figure it out go for and themselves. Grow. Go right? and grow, yeah. Yeah, because if you look at the three big civil rights movement that have happened in my lifetime, you have civil rights, you have sexual rights, and you have female rights, right? And in all of those things, like for with race, for instance, everybody knows that all people are created equal. I mean, if you have any brain at all, you know that's the truth. And if you're forced to live as a second-class citizen, it's like soul-crushing, right? Because you know it's not true. It's unjust. It, yeah, well, it's just, it's not, it, you can say what you want about, about it being unjust or whatever, but the bottom line is it's not true. And if you're trying to live something that's not true, it's going to make you crazy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've worked with a whole bunch of gay editors. I don't know why there's so many gay people involved in being editors, but they're really good at it for whatever reason. And I've got feedback, you know, they're dear friends and I've got feedback and they, like the one I, one of the ones that I work with the most, she had said, try to live straight, she tried to live straight for a while. And she said, you know, it's like trying to breathe on a water. Even trying makes you crazy. It's terrible. You know, well, it's not doable. Right. right. And then the femme rights thing, if a woman that tries to live, this is what, from what I've, I've been told, right? This isn't my take on it. What I've been told is that if you try to live, a woman tries to live their life according to how it's described by grandpa, she might end up hating herself and grandpa because chances are grandpa has no fucking idea what she's supposed to do, right? So in light of that, what you what you have is you don't get to choose who you are, but you got to be that person or it's going to be, your life is not going to make any sense, mm-hmm. right? No matter what your issues are. And whatever my daughters were were going to be, I was determined to let them figure it out so far as they could and not not try to impose on them my version of what I thought was best for them. That's great. Because I had I, I had the opposite happen to me and I hated it. Right. Right. Yeah. Did your kind of teenage year familial upbringing did that kind of drive you to that counterculture of rock climbing in the early 70s? No, I don't think so. You know, I sort of look at it differently. And maybe just because I've done, I've been a Zen meditator since I was, I grew up near, close to a Zen center. And I've just been doing that the whole time. And if you do a lot of that over the years, you don't tend to look at things as in linear causal terms. Like if people look for explanations and an explanation is usually... What it means is, oh, this happened and that happened, and in a deterministic way, that followed. But it doesn't really work like that, mm-hmm. right? There's all kinds of random, chaotic... Life is full of serendipity. Yeah, and it is. And, and, and the other thing is, what happens now is not always determined by what happened just a minute ago, mm-hmm. right? 
Yeah. It doesn't make any logical sense because well, where did the decision come from? It had to come from somewhere. You know, if you look at quantum mechanics, it says everything comes from nothing. Right. You know, void. Yeah. Spontaneously, ar- energy arises out of potentiality in a quantum field. Right. Right. There's no determining thing that spits out a result. It just appears. Right. Is there a difference for you between spirituality and moving meditation? Would you call climbing moving meditation? I grew up in the Zen tradition, so it's spirit. You know, it, it's it's questionable whether whether Zazen meditation is actually meditation, right? When mm-hmm. you get really down to it, and it's doubtful whether spiritual is something that applies to it, because most of the time when you talk about spiritual, spirit that that means okay, always oh, going to do the spiritual thing. That comes with a whole bunch of baggage, in my opinion. Spiritual is this, and it's not that. Okay. Open to interpretation. Well, it's... By the individual, maybe? Well, or, or there's so much cultural accretions on what spirituality is supposed to be. And you go into a Zen center, and there's chances are there's going to be like three people there. Never popular. All right, here you go. Sit, you know, you hear three bells, sit on the cushion, face the wall. Keep your eyes open. You know, you do something with your eyes open, because you live with your eyes open. And like, hey, wait a second, where's the hot tub? Where's the... Where's the Aren't we, you know, I want to feel good. He goes, never mind all that. Feel whatever you're feeling, right? And then Zazen meditation is just sitting, which is holding a pose. Butt flat, back straight, head slightly tilted, eyes at a 45 degree, ga- you know, soft gaze. And that's it. That's what you do. You're not trying to do anything with your mind. You're not trying to focus on anything. Anytime that the, all efforts to try to do anything are not Zen. Mm-hmm. You're not Zazen. Zazen is just hold the pose, just sit, right? It's really the art of doing nothing. But our brain is just scrambling around trying to figure out, okay, wait a second, I want to have a, have a spiritual experience. I came here to have, the, you know, well, you're coming into the thing thinking you know what you're supposed to experience. Well, you, no, no, no. The whole thing is you, you, over a period of time, you get good with whatever comes up. Right. That's the first lesson. Right, yeah. But the, the, that's only the beginning of it. That's only the, only the, the, just the surface layer of things is being infatuated with whatever the content of your experience is. Way more interesting to me is the fact that you're aware of having any experience, right? Or being open to it. Yeah. And, well, I mean, the, the fact that you have awareness or, or you're sentient. Like, what is that? Okay. So, early, you know, somewhere along the line, your practice shift from what you're experiencing to the fact that there there is any experience whatsoever and what is that how is that possible by what mode or what you know miracle or what, whatever what is that and you get into that and it's nothing that's the thing that's the that's a great mystery it's something totally ungraspable mm-hmm. and uh you know try to hang in that that's the advanced course right yeah interesting yeah no 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 bottom no you know no nothing you know, and there's a lot of chaos that you're going to have to go through and sit through and, uh, you know, try that on for size buster. Right. You know, wait, yeah. wait a second. Where's my guru? Where's my, you know, where's the incense? Where's the, you know, strike up the band? I want to, you know, you go in there. Most people get into that stuff, myself included, because you feel a, inter- you know, a level of internal chaos that you, you can't manage. And, you know, lo and behold, oddly, the way to manage it is not to try to manage it. Just let it be there and see what happens. And that have you, that's how you've managed yeah. your internal chaos. Yeah. Which we all have. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's void. I mean, you know, if you if you go to people that are struggling in their life, underneath all of it is going to be some visceral sense of void that or chaos that they're trying to avoid, right? Because they simply feel like they're going to atomize if 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 I go into it enough. Part of climbing, especially top end climbing, is you're walking right into that, right? Completely and consciously and intentionally going into a extremely chaotic. What happens is if you get in a situation where the outcome is entirely unknown, right? There's no guarantee that this is going to work out. You're going to be left to your own devices and luck and all a bunch of your partners and what have you. But there's there's no guarantee that this is going to work, mm-hmm. right? That is chaos making. That's one of the great conundrums or, or mysteries of the, the chaotic thing is if you can just hang in it, it actually, clarity comes can come out of that. Mm-hmm. But boy, it, intuitively speaking, it's like, let me get out of here. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember the first time I got up on a really big climb, the direct north uh, buttress of Middle Cathedral, the DMB, and I was like, just turned 18. I was another guy, Will Tyree, who was really experienced, but I, I hadn't, you know, hardly done any multi-pitch stuff. And that was one of the hardest big long free climbs in the country. It might have been the hardest at the time. And uh, I got up there and was so overmatched by it. You know, we're out in the middle of this big face. And I look up, there's like another 2,000 feet to go. And Middle Cathedral is giant, right? And that route climbs at bottom to top. And I was just like, oh, my God. Thankfully, Will led most of the middle part of the thing. And then wisely towards the top, because you, you know, go, you know, you got to start leading again, John. You got to get on the horse, you know. And he gave me some leads up top, and I got my confidence back. But boy, in the middle of that thing, it felt like my I was on fire. You know, I just wasn't, I didn't have the gut, you know, the wherewithal to be able to deal with that much. Yeah, you know, I picked it up quick. Right. But you know, there's that 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 breaking in in any of these things. There's a line beyond which things get real in a way that you could never imagine and you never know whether you have what it takes to be able to deal with it until you're there. And it, it, it's funny because it, it it's so incremental. Like everything can be fine up to a certain level. Then one step beyond that and it's like, whoa. Like if you listen to any of those big wave surfers, like, like big wave surfing now with the towing thing and all that, you know, that's a big deal, right? And people, you know, they can surf 10 or 12 foot waves and, you know, they've done it all their life and they're 20. 21 years old and they get and all of a sudden they go to over to North Shore Hawaii or Waimea Bay or down to Chopu and to Tahiti or Mavericks or whatever and all of a sudden it might only be two three feet bigger but it's a completely different thing because you've crossed that threshold wherever it is for you and that's where you're going to find out okay am I going to fold or am I going to be able to deal with this and just because you fold at the beginning doesn't mean that it's that's a permanent condition by the same token, just because you did well once doesn't mean that you're gonna. It's gonna continue doing that. I mean, you get once you cross that line, you know you you can survive. That's a great confidence booster. But unless your head's into it, like I accomplished a whole bunch in rock climbing, I was used to the chaos of undetermined or indetermined uh, outcomes, and I get up on something, and I, my head wasn't in it, or I hadn't been climbing enough, or I'd been I, I was distracted by a bunch of stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm back to square one, which is like, oh, God, this again, you know? It's a dance. Yeah, it is. And, and wherever you stand on it is a very mutable, you know, protean kind of position. I mean, it's really just, it changes all the time. It's very fluid. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if I'm doing something all the time, if 
if I was up in Yosemite, I was climbing all the time, and I knew I was pretty solid when I got up there. Like, I, I was somebody that had to, that, that did well if I was really active. I was never, a, like, an off-the-couch master. Like, my gram, I knew some other people could just go up there and just get on stuff, and it didn't bother them. I had to be doing it a lot. Mm-hmm. If it was familiar, then I, I could hang with it. Well, and the, the image of you and uh, Jim Bridwell and Billy West Bay standing in front of El Cap after the first successful nose in a day ascent it's you know it's part of climbing lore it's what i grew up being inspired by and idolizing and just the the sheer vibe of that picture and i know you're kind of anathema to talk about the past but now whatever 45 years later how do you look back on that kind of being a granite astronaut which are your words yeah i don't think anything's changed i don't think anything's changed from the beginning of time i think people that got on long boats and went looking for islands and you know, Honnold up there soloing and, you know, people taking a forest walk into, on, down, down a path they'd never found before. I think it's all the same, mm-hmm. really. You know, I mean, we, we, it's, it's a basic impulse. We pushed it really hard because we were really good athletes and we had each other. We had a community and there was a tradition of climbing. And so it could go in that direction, right? But, but the vibe that was embodied by that iconic picture... And if I have to look at that one more time, I'm, I'm just sure. going to die. <laughs> right? But nevertheless, you know, it spoke to a lot of people because it's a universal vibe. Right. People have known that since, you know, Vasa da Gama and, you know, I mean, go back to the early explorations or people going into the moon. It's all the same thing, right? Same like, concept. What's the unknown? You know, what? there's a there's chaos out there. Let me... Uh, Embrace it. Well, yeah, let me let me take a little piece of this and see, mm-hmm. what, see how far, you know, how much... Because it's exciting. It's life-affirming. Right. You know? I want to make it, make it clear that I don't, I don't and never consider that we had some kind of exclusive on some special kind of take on living, you know, that was embodied in climbing El Cap for the first time one day. That's just, you know. But you guys set out to do explicitly that, right? Yeah, we, yeah. we set out to do it. But I mean, you know, people have been speed climbing in Yosemite for quite a while. I mean, that was just the loudest statement. That catalyzed a movement that had been going on sporadically for a long time. Right. For me, the Stone Masters are very iconic, right? They're mm-hmm. part of climbing history. You know, th- those teenage years have to be a formative time in your life where you fell into that group. I mean, yeah. how did you how did you find them? I don't know. If it, it, we found each other. I mean, it just spontaneously arose out of late 70s culture, rock and roll culture, and, and sort of that in a fusion with that, you know, high-end athleticism. And cultural disillusion, right? Yeah. At the core of the Stone Masters was not a counter-revolutionary thing it wasn't pushing off from something it was going towards something because all of those people in there were very if you look at what a lot of those and like, sorry happened they were very ambitious people right and what do you think it was going towards by that trying to accomplish things mm-hmm. just physical and mental feats yeah yeah i mean they wanted you know people wanted to do make a mark if only to have the experiences associated with it not not so much to be you know i mean if somebody would have said People were going to talk about the Stone Masters while we were Stone Masters were happening. I would have laughed, right? Because it was such a loose knit kind of group, right? right? Loose term. Yeah, but but within that group, there was there were a lot of historical figures, and they were all of them were freaking hell bent on doing hard stuff, right? Following in the other Valley pioneers, yeah, and then yeah. just keep you know pushing it. Well, and you you called Jim Bridwell the de facto king of Camp Four, yeah, and and your you know antics together are you know, stuff of climbing legend, but how do you remember Jim now? He was like a, he was sage-like. 
dysfunctional, but sometimes it was really, they go hand mostly, in hand. You know, for somebody that was such a a warrior kind kind of guy, he was really gracious. Like I showed up and I was seventeen and I had all this ambition and you know arrogant and difficult and loud mouthed and it would have been easy for the best climber, best rock climber in the world to look at me at that time and just laugh, right? Instead, he embraced you. Yeah, I, sh- I showed up in Camp Warner and he was there, sitting on a rock with no shirt on, smoking a camel, and um, I was loud and obnoxious, you know. And he he sort of giggled or chuckled and. Uh, Asked me, me where I was staying. I go, I don't know. I just I just arrived. I didn't even know who it was, right? And he goes, well, just put your stuff over there, right? Like, it was crazy because he was he was there the moment I arrived, and his eyes were right on me. It was just like, oh, shucks. You couldn't escape his gaze. Well, and he was legendary for recruiting new kind Not of... Not yet. Okay. That's, that started. But he obviously, that was in his mind, and he saw something in you. Yeah, well, what happened was he, he had grown up, he was really young when the previous, like the 60s pioneers were up there, and he got mentored by them. And when I arrived, it was about right, there was a two or three year period where all the old school left. Royal, all, yeah, all of Warren, them. all those guys. Yeah, Steve Roper, Foote, you know, Eric Beck, Frank Sacker, Mark Powell, they, they, had all, they all went into doing their life, right? And Bridwell, that was Bridwell's life. Period. So he was going to have to recruit, you know, and he had huge ambitions. He was going to have to find some partners and bring them up to speed, like, immediately. Because mm-hmm. he wasn't, wor- you know, he wasn't thinking about waiting to do these projects. Right. So he was. He kept his eye peeled, and he goes, and I was climbing with him that afternoon. He goes, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to do the left side of Reed Pinnacle. Because the local hard man at my local crag, Suicide and Talk Eats, had gone up there recently and couldn't do it. And I'm like, I'm doing that, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> I was super competitive from day one. He goes, well, okay, we'll do that. So we went down and did it, and that was it. And we were, I was doing a new route with him the next day. So you remember him as a gracious person? Oh, yeah, completely. And yeah. I ended up doing all kinds of stuff with him. Right. A lot of expeditions. You yeah. know, we co- walked across Borneo together. Right, yeah. Climbed up Cap in a day. You know, did yeah. a bunch of new routes on Middle Cathedral. Right. Climbed a big wall in Watkins with him, a new mm-hmm. one. You know, so I, we were joined at the hip. For a lot of years. Right. Yeah. I love Lynn Hill's description of in Valley Uprising, you know, that in order to be a stone master, you had to climb like every day was your last and consequently smoke a lot of weed. That was overplayed. Was it? Yeah, the weed. I mean, for one thing, the weed back then was like grass, <laughs> right. like dichondra stuff or, yeah. you know, it wasn't very strong. Right. But so. what what do you think of when you have that nucleus, whether it's in the 60s with Royal Robbins, Warren Harding, etc., or the 70s? Like, what, what do you think's driving that physical and mental exploration? Because collectively as a group. I think it's just a, well, there's a couple of factors. One, you have to have more than just a couple of people, so you get a synergy. Two, that people have to be really ambitious. But at the core of it is just curiosity and, and atomic level energy. And if you're curious and you're sort of of the Icarus kind who likes to fly close to the sun, then Which you know, you're in heaven, are. you know, in Yosemite. I mean, there's infinite opportunities to express that. Are you still close with any of the members? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who- I mean, they're starting to die off, but uh, well, a lot of them died, you know, just in the process. I mean, it's dangerous, that stuff, especially the ones people that got into wingsuiting and, right. and mountaineering and alpinism. I mean, only half the people that the top end people survived doing that. You know, which is another issue. You know, I grew up in, I was born in Indio, which is down by Joshua Tree in the middle of the desert. And I grew up in Upland and the 
the Claremont Pomona area. That's true Southern California, hot. I always hated the cold, so I, I, I wasn't ever drawn towards doing mountaineering. I was fine with just doing rock climbing. And then later when I got into expeditions, I went to jungle areas. Mm-hmm. You talk about, you know, be, showing up being loud and confident, if you will. Did the stone Enthusiastic masters? more than anything. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, all of that just all perspective a real, of that word. And a boundless enthusiasm for, you know, living and getting up and having great experiences. That's that's really what it was at the bottom of it all. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know how to express it. I was, you know, I mean, who does when you're 17? Yeah. Did it fill a void that was missing in your life, that group? Like it was Oh, a... no, absolutely. I found a tribe, right? Mm-hmm. That was a huge thing. Yeah. You know, especially growing up in an area in a in a family in which I felt like an alien, and all of a sudden I'm around people who are quite a bit like me. Nobody was exactly alike, but was we all had a lot in common. That must have been refreshing. Oh yeah, no, it was wonderful, real life affirming. Yeah, and that's why that you know during the winter time we'd always drive out to Josh, and there was one campground we'd all meet, and there was you know there's twenty or thirty people that we that you'd known for ultimately you know when that started fizzling out, you'd climb with these people hundreds, thousands of times, and known them for years, right? And so you know that was your group, and and whenever I see any of those people, it's the same, right? Strong bonds. Yeah. How do you think of the other? pioneering climbers you know that we've lost over time and i'm thinking yabo john yeah, backer yeah was a mental health issue and love- he, he never got any he never got what was whatever could ameliorate his problem he never got it uh because i mean he probably but you know i mean if you want to use this designation he's probably bipolar right and that those are that's treatable stuff right right but do you put him in the same category as backer no. or dean potter these vi- Potter, kind of I do visionaries that we've yeah. lost. I mean, do you think of them as pioneers or casu- oh, no, absolutely. casualties or both? Yeah, both, all of it, mm-hmm. all of the above. I mean, those three—Dean Potter, John Backer, and and Yabo—all basically died by way of adventure sports. Well, not Yabo, but he should have died a million times from the crazy stuff that he did. Potter died wingsuiting, and Backer died soloing. You're talking about, you know, transcendentally ambitious. I think Potter speaks to that the best when he's in his interviews, you know, Yeah, talking about seeing another portal and things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, that stuff would get a little rare. You know, he'd dress it up with woo and religiosity and, you know, trying to, my, my sense was always trying to put a little, put more meaning to it for him, which is fine. Maybe uh, searching for that. Yeah. Something, you know, right. You know, it's hard to look at those things and, in terms other than what's the cause. What yeah. do you mean by that? Well, you, you, if you want to understand somebody, it's a science-minded thing to go, you know, science, well, what caused it? Well, what, it, it's, it's a physical thing in a linear sequence. And the, the previous thing, you look at that and go, well, that's the cause. These things came together and this happened, right? Causation, correlation. Yeah, linear causal. Yeah. And I don't think it's that, you know, that doesn't explain everything. Right. Maybe it can't be explained. No. And you introduced Backer to free soloing, right? Yeah. Is that something, considering his demise, how you how you look back <laughs> on that? Well, I mean, he was inevitably going to do it anyway. You know, not to take myself out of the equation, but uh, it's a tricky thing to try to explain. When we used to always meet out of Joshua Tree, this is starting when we were about 17, you know, after three or four years of every winter weekend being out of Joshua Tree in the same place, and insofar that that place was situated amongst a bunch of, like, the most popular climbing that went on at Joshua Tree, or at least the most well-traveled, was right there in camp. 
you end up doing just by default at the end of the day or the beginning of the day to get warmed up, you end up doing the standard things around camp hundreds of times. I mean, literally hundreds of times. And after 40 or 50 times, it's like, I don't need, you know, I've done this thing so many times. I've never even come close to falling off. I don't need a rope. Right. But you speak to his soloing in terms of a much different level than what you were interested in pursuing. Yeah. I See, the tricky part about trying to stay up with Backer <coughs> was I was in school I mean, those are winter weekends, right? And I was in college during the week, and I could boulder and work out and what have you, but it's different. Backer was out of Joshua Tree and living out of his van, and he was climbing and working out like a fiend every day. And I'd come out there and climb two days a week with him. And there's just no way I'm always going to be able to maintain the same level of fitness in the wintertime that he, he could. My efforts to try to stay up with him solo eventually became do-or-die kind of stuff, right? So I... I had a couple of really close shaves that were that fucking close. And I said, you know. Take a step back. Yeah, I'm going to. I got other things I want to do other than soloing out at Josh, like big stuff in Yosemite and other things. And I don't want to just check out through a moment of madness here trying to keep up with the backer who was probably, and he's one of the handful best rock climbers in the world at that time. Maybe ever, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, as far as on site climbing, people haven't gotten a whole lot better than backer. I mean, he, he was phenomenal. Right, yeah. How do you look back on the kind of the ex- uh, the obsession, the risk acceptance, and the, the fears of those peak years? I mean, you can look at it in one, one respect, which is, okay, what, what's with this intentional flirtation with death? But that, I don't think that, was the, that wasn't the motivating thing. It was, that, that wasn't what, okay, oh, I'm going to go out and flirt with death. No, that was just something that if you wanted to go out and do these kinds of routes, you're going to have to deal with that. And not to make it sound all that heroic, a lot of, you know, the majority of stuff I did wasn't like that at all. You know, it was fairly secure and what have you. But there were, yeah, there were times every year where you get on something that was like, whoa, and you got to be really careful here. And I, I think it was, that's just another one of those curious, Icarus kind of things, right? If you're predisposed to want to push it, then you're going to push it, you know? And there's no rational, rational explanation for it because... I mean, there's no getting away from the apocalyptic elements of life. Everybody's going to die. So the standard thinking is, well, if that's going to happen anyway, why don't, you, why don't we just stretch this life out a little while and take it easy and, you know, get as much out of it as we can. But if you're, well, as I say, if you're an Icarus by nature, you're going to have to take your time, you know, you're going to have to spend your time flying close to the sun. And at some level, you're going to have to hold up and make a decision to back off. And you were able to make those. Yeah, we have to. Because if you if you don't do that, well, you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, we wouldn't be chatting. No. The other thing is you have to set some limit on yourself. Because if you don't set some limit on yourself, what happens is you have no scale for living. From the time I got world class and started doing new routes and you know doing big adventures, my life, had, my life started off very small. Little town, little family, little very narrow sort of bandwidth. And from that, I'm doing new routes and, you know, things on big, you know, so many big walls. My life had accelerated and expanded at a level that I couldn't keep up with it, right? So unless I declared what, you know, some kind of limit or boundary for where I was going to go, as I said, I I would have no scale for living the rest of my life. And you can't really, if you're a born risk taker, you can't really even begin the rest of your life until you said, okay, here's the line I'm not going to cross. And now I'm ready to you know, go sideways into something else. Unless you get 
early on, if your reason for living is derived from flying really, really close to the sun, you're going to have to just like being gay, being this, that, or the other thing. You're going to, if that's who you are, you're going to have to be that for a while and then consciously say, okay, I've done this. And I know if I keep trying to do this, it's a game of diminishing returns. And I'm going to be a statistic like, you know, half the alpinist, leading yeah. alpinist are. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to declare what my limit is. And then I'm, I'm going to have some boundaries for the rest of my life. Without which that realm can become, there's no boundaries. You're living a life with no boundaries whatsoever. And you, have, you don't have any containment and there's no, there's no meaning other than within that milieu. And it ends up, I think it ends up being uh, counterproductive and, and limiting. Mm-hmm. Well, and we talk a lot with every guest about death because it's mm-hmm. interwoven with the sports we love and the lifestyles we pursue. But it sounds like your take on that now is much different than when you were younger. Well, I don't think anybody has an, any idea. Right. I'm trying to comp- contemplate not being here. Right. You can't even get your head around that. But at the right? same at the same time, in one of your articles, I, I read the quote regarding death. It's very revealing to me. So if I didn't care about existing before I was born, why fret the afterwards? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I always thought it was a curious thing, and that was a like a Zen koan kind of thing. It well, just goes back to the fact that we we, we are predisposed. On this goes back to Kant, actually, who said you we think that we that our thinking is free entirely, but we are predisposed for all thinking to flow along certain channels, right? And one of those channels is linear, time-wise, right? And if once existence happens, meaning, okay, I'm, I'm alive, then I can project in my mind a future, right? And if I project in the future a time in which I don't exist, if I'm existing now, it's going to make me nervous. And I'm going to feel like, oh, I'm dead. I'm this, the, that. And yet you look behind on that timeline before I was born, and there's no difference between, at least in theory what the future without me would be like as opposed to the past without me. Why is it that I don't bother with the past whatsoever? It's because I never existed then. So why, why am I, why am I you know, fretting towards the future? Well, it's because I'm ex- coming into existence and I don't want it to stop, right? Right. Your mind approaches right, but it that's rationally. All, that's all linear thinking. Like what, what is some other way to, to approach that that's not linear? Right. And that is that their existence is probably not what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And what is that? Well, you could, you know, you're, you're into some very slippery material there, but, you know, pretty interesting stuff as well. Right. Was the high stakes, you know, free climbing push game for you that way? Or what was your mental construct with that? Well, it was always risk taking was, that's what made the thing exciting, right? It wasn't merely doing hard stuff. I mean, some of my favorite memories were, we're climbing on doing new routes on Middle Cathedral, you know, which is it's about a about a benign a venue as you could think of. I mean, you're in California, the rock's great. I mean, it's big and steep and scary some in places, but there is not inherently a dangerous thing at all. But you could get up on those new routes not knowing where you're going, and if you got out of the crack systems and started wandering around the face, you could find yourself way way out from the protection like in no time with no idea whether it's going to go or it isn't going to go or whether you climbed off route. And you know, that that's those experiences. Those are electrifying experiences for me. They also force you to be present to your life and experience and existence in a way that normally 
a person wouldn't have, at least with that intensity and totality. And I, I don't want to try to make, you know, try to get into making this thing philosophical. I'm talking about like at the animal level, mm-hmm. right? Not as some, not as a rarefied idea, right? But just, just raw, raw living. Yeah, mm-hmm. just raw present. That's why a lot of people get into doing refining things, or that's the experience they get. Is man, I'm here I'm here now, like no doubt about it. Not as an esoteric idea, but as a direct experience. Yeah, and as climbers, I think we're all drawn to that. Yeah, you know, moth to the flame mm-hmm. type concept. Yeah, and, and as it happens, one of the things that focuses our mind is when there's something at stake. If you've got skin in the game, you're going to pay attention. Yeah, and that's one of the big draws of it, is that the experience of paying all the attention you have to one thing that happens in space and time, like right this minute. It's right very beautiful. Second. Yeah. Yeah, commitment. Yeah. You know, what do you think of the current crop of speed climbers? And when you look at someone like Alex Honnold pushing the, the ceiling that much higher, how how much room for for growth is there do you think not much not now he's he's kind of there yeah I, I i mean the thing is they're basically simul climbing the whole thing anyway and the most of the people that are doing trying going for really top speed on like the nose they climbed it many dozens of times so they're very familiar with it rehearsed like yeah it's it's, it's extremely well rehearsed it's like a gymnastic routine and you know, the gen- genetics are not going to change in a g- generation. The nutrition is great. They're already working out. Can't work out anymore. Your body would blow up. They're the best of the best. They're climbing simultaneously, meaning everybody has cardio limits. And you're basically, it's just solo, bottom to top, with a rope in case you come off. You're going to take a 200-footer if you do, if you're lucky. So it's hard to imagine that the speeds are going to get you know, that much. I mean, you look at the 100-meter, you know, sprinters, 100-meter sprints, supposed to be the world's fastest man or woman or whatever. Somebody recently did an analysis of Jesse Owens, you know, his turnover rate and, you know, how fast his legs were moving at top speed and what have you, and compared to Usain Bolt, you know, who has the current record. Well, Jesse's running on a cinder track with, you know, old bullshit spikes. No spring. Yeah. And they calculated that they're basically moving at the same speed. All things equal. All, all things considered. Right. Same with Roger Bannister, probably yeah. in a three-whatever-miler now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, physiologically, things haven't changed that much. So it's doubtful things are going to change much in the future to the extent that it would make a marked difference on time genetically. Now, it's hard to imagine anybody working out. They can maybe work out smarter, but I don't think they're going to be working out any more. They're not certainly not going to know the route any better than people do now. The equipment is n- virtually not a factor now because they're not using any. Okay, <laughs> so that's not going to be a limiting factor. No matter how good shoes get, it's hard to imagine how that's going to going to hasten an ascent. So I think we're looking really very closely at what the human limit is. I mean, sure, eventually somebody that's willing to take even greater risk. Arnold thought that they did they did it in one fifty eight his last record he thought the human limit might be 130 because we are you know only a few days after the you know two-hour marathon time being broken granted it was a contrived course and you know built to be broken but but nobody thought that was possible but but still when you think about that you're looking at what is that you know three percent faster two you know from a 208 which was sort of the you know for years was the time time in a marathon it's like wow somebody did a 208 you know then 207 206 
you know, just thought, wow, okay, that's gonna you're gonna blow your heart up if you try to go any faster than that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I'll tell you what, they're they're certainly not gonna get much faster by playing it safer. Right. Okay, and that's the concern, is that after after Klein and and Wells was it uh, died. Which both of them ripped off the salathe and went right into the ground. Took a nine hundred or thousand foot dive right into the ground. Those guys that had died last year on the on the salathe, they were as experienced, probably maybe more so than anybody street climbing. They didn't go for top records, but they, I think between them they had over a hundred one day ascents of El Cap, which is mind boggling. Twenty one day ascents of the salathe. That's mind numbing. Impressive. When it, yeah, when it came to just speed climbing stuff, maybe not top speed, but just doing that, like doing big walls in a day. They were the masters at it. And if they're going to come off and go in, what does that say for people that are less talented and less experienced? It's become an exceedingly dangerous kind of thing because the only way you're going to go faster is to take greater risk. With that much experience in climbing that that long, you're not going to suddenly get a lot better. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's and you're not going to know the route a lot better having already climbed it a hundred times or some insane amount. So what's what's gonna what's gonna enable you to go faster? Well, less gear. Right. Less protection. Less okay, I'm gonna rest less. A little you know, if as as if they rest now. They'll push the cardio to where they're even that much more gassed. Whereas they might have paused for a moment to regroup. Now they're gonna try this next thing fully pumped. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like alpinism now. The top end alpinism, and I just went, you know, I had to go to Jess uh, Ruskelly's memorial. And yeah. I, you know, I love that guy. I knew, I knew his dad. His dad was a hero of mine. He's heartbreaking. And, and uh, Jess and I both were worked for Adidas on the outdoor adventure team. And I, I got to spend a lot of time around him. And he was just such a great person, you know, one of a kind joker and you know, dad, a, real, a real, real dude, you know, and left a wife that he was in. They were both insanely in love with each other. You know, when he got killed with David Lahman, I can't even pronounce the other guy's name, an Austrian, great Austrian climber. Yeah, top three alpinists of the generation. Yeah, really. Right? Just wiped right off the face of this thing by Chirac, they think. Crumbling something fell and, you know, just whisked him right off. Now, I'm glad I'm not an alpinist or never was an alpinist. Because to make a name for yourself in that in that world right now, yeah, through there's so, well, there's so few options left. All of them require some luck i think i don't claim to know a whole lot about it but uh i've been around it a lot and i know the people i've done enough of that kind of stuff to be somewhat informed man that is that is a crapshoot right you know that's why somebody like blanchard having survived like he didn't maybe didn't do all those big mountain things but did those extremely technical still big you know you go you go up around the bamfrey and look at those mountains are big Maybe they're not Himalayan style big, but the sheer difficulty of what what he and others were doing up there is well, not like pro- mind boggling, right? And to be able to repeatedly do that stuff with such a thin margin for error. Well, that brotherhood, you know, him, yeah. Dwight, Scott Backus. Yeah. I mean, and, and just actively courting death. I mean, and and openly is just it's bananas to me. Yeah, I don't and know if was... I don't know if that I don't know if that's the best way to guys are just trying guys and girls. Men and fem- men and women, male, female, however you want to say it, when they go up on that stuff, and you don't want to let le- the female thing out of it because they're they become big players in that now, right? The mountain doesn't discriminate; it'll take anybody out. But uh, it's hard to categorize 
elephantism as courting death as as though that was the delineating feature of the thing. I mean, that's that's just a factor of what you're doing when you're up there. And I think it was more just those three. You yeah. know, they were like middle finger, punk rock. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, we're going to send this. I don't care if it's together or solo. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that thing that Jess did on that Arette up in, uh, I can't remember what the name of that thing was that he did in Alaska. It's like six days, six or seven days. Nobody gets that kind of window of weather. They did get stormed down, pinned on the summit for a couple of days. But he got on something you could, you know, it was really impossible to get off of it. And there's no telling whether they could do it or not. And boy, you talk about commitment. Boy, oh boy, that, that, that stuff is just so committing. And there's no reversing some of it, right? You make the top of it or you that's where you're going to be, you know, frozen in place or just or avalanched off the thing. Right. It's just like a crapshoot, man. Yeah. No, agreed. Has being a parent changed you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, your priorities change. How so? Well, I, I stopped taking crazy risk. And up until that point, I was always, any incentive I had to make money was always me, myself, and I. What can I do with this money for my own, you know, immediate gratification? Well, you can forget about that once you have a couple of kids. It's all going towards them, which is fine. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a particular Rock and Ice article um, that I found tremendously insightful and, to be frank, very beautiful. And you talk about the first true relative you ever saw was your daughter, Marianne. Yeah. And about the experience, you write, life was never the same. And particularly, you write, finally, I belonged. Yeah, well, I, I hadn't really thought about it. You know, it's like I'd never actually seen a relative in my life. I mean, a blood relative. And then I had a daughter, and I'm like, hey, wait a second. On a visceral level, it tied me into the, you know, like, humanity in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And again, not in not in a, like, a sentimental, maudlin, batho kind of way, right? But more, way more primitive, on a super primitive way. Yeah. Very, You're like a genetic, like cellular level, not something Hallmark card kind of thing. That's way removed from what I'm talking about. It's like, mm-hmm. wow. It's very visceral. F- visceral and, and physical, not emotional, so to speak, right? Way more primitive and way po- more powerful than that. Mm-hmm. When I think as a, you know, being social mammals, we all crave that. You can't have, try, try to be disconnected from your environment right now. Try not to be aware of the sounds or the smear, you know, the light or the, you can't. Your consciousness is such that it is, you're inexplicably part of everything around you. You might not feel like that, right? Your attachments might be whacked out or whatever. But it's always there. Always there. So you don't have to make that up. You just have to wake up to it. Like I was always just as connected to humanity as ever. Before I had a daughter, I just didn't feel it in that way. I wasn't aware of it. When I saw it, it like verified what was already going on. Like, how, how would I not be part of the g- genetic gene pool of the world? It's not possible, right? Right, yeah. And you also write that at one juncture, your aggression made your daughter cry and that you literally felt like dying. And there's a quote in there that you know says aggression is always... A fallback position against stepping up to the mic naked and open-hearted and telling the unvarnished truth. Yeah, which I think is why well, you know, you know I, I I got a little of that aggro thing from my dad because he used to get his energy get huge at times, right? And I never did, you know, I like I never did that around my daughters. I mean, one time, my you know, you know, anybody can bug you, right? And I was trying to do work. You know, she was probably eight, and I was trying to work doing something. I remember and. um 
And she kept bugging me, you know, like pinching me or doing something. And I just wasn't in the mood at the time, you know. And I just, just for a second, I wheeled around and it's like, God damn it. You know, and my energy got big. I didn't hit her or anything remotely like that. But I saw her cringe and I saw that fear in her eyes. And I'm like, oh boy, that's not doable. Right. You know, so I, I, I quit what I was doing, got her. And we went for a long walk and, you know, she forgot all about it. But that was not good. You don't want to, to have people recoil from you from fear and that you know that's the aggression i mean aggression has a part if you want to accomplish anything you're gonna to have to use it but you gotta you have to control it and harness it yeah harness it mm-hmm. otherwise it's just gonna it's a runaway train right yeah and then you know i've always wondered the exploits of your youth are you know well published and we've all lived lives like that and had you know stuff done in our youth that we may or may not be stoked on or proud of but (laughs) mine's not written in history (laughs) you know how do you how did you balance that with being a parent you know were you ever worried like oh my gosh my daughters read about this crazy shit that i know they knew from the beginning yeah yeah just inherently no i went to use my you know what happened was like got around my older or my younger sister and she told them all about it and then they and she took them they were 15 or 16 she took them to yosemite I was off working somewhere and they spent a couple of weeks with her and she took him to Yosemite and they came back and said, your daddy, you're fucking crazy. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, they knew all about it, you know, the weed smoking, the, you know, all of it. And they didn't think anything about it. And then both of them were foreign exchange students in Germany and they went over there and had, had wild time for a couple of years. And so they, you know, they had their, they did their crazy stuff. Right. We all do. Yeah. What's your opinion on the brotherhood of the rope or sisterhood, as we should say? I mean, do you, those strong bonds that we establish as climbers, yeah. what do those mean to you? Climbers are outdoor people. You know, it's just like anything else. You know, people in music or, you know, it's a tribal kind of thing, right? So it, it, it immediately connects you to a huge community. If you're a really big time surfer, baseball player, cricket player, you know, canasta player, ballet dancer, whatever, you can go anywhere in the world and if you, you're going to find people just like you and immediately will have a lot in common with, right? And so it's a tribal kind of thing and I, it's a, there's an intense value to that just because we have a lot of shared, you know, likes, likenesses. Mm-hmm. Commonalities. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's life-affirming to me. Yeah. Yesterday when we did a little presentation at your shop, Somebody came up and said, oh, you was, you know, I read all the stuff that you did and it was really inspirational. And it got me to where finally, you know, I got up El Capitan, right? And this guy's like 50 pounds overweight now and this and that. You know, we're talking about something that happened probably 30 years ago. He goes, what, what's your take on all this stuff? I go, what's my take on this is what you did was exactly what I started out to do, which was I wanted to climb El Capitan. And in the end, what you did was exactly as significant to you is what I did was significant to me, which is we got our ass up a cap. It's all right? relative. Yeah, completely relative. So when we look back, the fact that I might have been better technically or whatever, it isn't totally meaningless. Right. We were both on a cap, having looked originally looked up there and go, there's no freaking way I'm ever getting up there. You know, shivers my timbers just to look at it, right? I mean, it's one thing to be a tourist and to come there like a, a Muslim pilgrim going doing the hajj and walking around the kava stone you know just an interesting kind of thing and experience to look at this thing and be part another thing to say oh shit i gotta climb that thing right right like i physically have to get up there and live on that right for a while right that's a different thing than being down the meadow and affirming that big things like that big natural features like the grand canyon or 
Angel Falls or El Capitan, those are cultural convergent points. People come from everywhere to see that stuff. I like how you call it mineral time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's timeless. No sense of time just looking at that thing. It's like, I mean, can you get really get your head around 100 million years? Right. Or whatever it was. I still think there's there's more to it there from your end, right? Like, and I don't, I tend to not read things unless they're really profound. And, and I want to read this to you if it's okay. It says, my life seamlessly blends flux with permanence and the unborn. I feel boundless every time I get outdoors and into the wilderness, jump onto a rock monolith. I sense the immeasurable every time I pause and note the person on the bed beside me, or more importantly for this question, the other end of our rope. Mysteriously, I can strike a balanced concord with other voices, which is the reason for the 10,000 forms as opposed to just the one. Like, that's super deep when it comes to partnerships. Sound like I was smoking weed or something. Hey, dude, they're your words, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean, a lab run, that's, the, that's fucking deep. And I love that about you, because on the surface, you're John Long. I know that you categorize yourself as a writer before a climber, but our world categorizes you as a writing climber, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's a little niche. Yeah. Because, you know, most of, the, most of the writing I do has nothing to do with climbing. never did. But you don't read shit like that when you pick up Alpinist or Rock and Ice anymore. Yeah, they probably didn't smoke as much weed as I did. Wait, but wait, years, you said the weed ago. was bad. You said the weed was bad. Yeah. That weed. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I haven't, you know, I've been, I haven't drank anything in like 20 years. And, right. You know, I've been completely straight edge, I guess they call it. Yeah. You know, the thing is, that kind of passage, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's the constellation of a lot of thinking and a lot of whatever. I think that material is meant for a private harvest and it's meant to sit with and look at and to think about and what have you and as a talking point i don't know how much progress can really be made looking into passages like that i mean if you picked out one little thing maybe i could elaborate on it but those mm -hmm. are grand sweeping kind of universal or whatever right you know and it's basically just looking at you know what is this life that we have and and there's always going to be this strange juxtaposition of the one and the many, right? And the impersonal and the, and the personal. And I don't mean in some kind of rarefied way. I don't mean in some spiritual way. I mean, just us sitting here in the most basic primitive way, there's all of these opposites that are going on that we're not really, most of the time, because of life's practical concerns, we're not even aware of them going mm -hmm. on, you know? Think of how fantastically bizarre and magical it is that we're, we're even he here communicating or that we're aware that there's stuff going on or that co your consciousness is creating everything you see. Right. I can strike a balanced concord with other voices as opposed to just the one. It's very, it's very insightful. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. As a writer, it's a, it's a challenge to try to get into any kind of verbal form that kind of material, right? It's an exercise for me to try to get clear in my mind, you know, what is this stuff, right? Well, that's one, one way is to try to put words to it. That's one of many ways, right? The other thing is to share that and say, okay, maybe, that, maybe somebody can get their head around this in a way that I didn't and then come back with more. And this Maybe is that, my role to put this out. Yeah, there. yeah. I mean, this is just my little contribution. It's not meant to be some kind of definitive last word on any of that stuff whatsoever. It's just my take on it, right? Yeah. And I've always been interested in the juxtapositioning of opposites and the fact that we 
nevertheless, the, our experience is totally unified. It's a mind-boggling thing to me that there's all of these pieces, and yet this experience that we have is completely unified, it's seamless. Chew on that for a while, right? right? That, so maybe just pointing that out is enough to get people in, into some interesting thing. And once again, when I say chew on that for a while, I don't mean as an idea. I mean, as a lived experience, what's going on, like on a primitive, like almost animal level. Mm-hmm. We can paint all manner of fancy words and philosophical ideas and metaphysical stuff. And you can take a materialist take and look on it as a physical thing, purely physical. And there's all, there's all kinds of different tacks to look at it. There's also the realization that that's the mental part. And there's, much, there's a much cruder, much prim, more primitive part, which really has all the power in it. Yeah, and I think I find your writing tremendously reflective and, and beautiful. And I think you're a, a master at just that, eliciting personal reflection from the reader while also being self-deprecating and open. I mean, is that a conscious effort in your writing? Because you have these great well, stories yeah. and then you throw in these little like snippets of, you know, like I didn't have the sack to return this <laughs> yeah. guy's letter who died in the Trade Center bombing. And yeah. so I see those as being tied together. Yeah, I mean, when I started, when I first started reading climbing stuff or outdoor adventure stuff, it, it it was mainly physical descriptions of things, right? It didn't have a humanistic. Some of it did. I mean, of course it did, you know. So I can't say that categorically, but all the literature I was reading was all all human based stuff, right? It was character based stuff. It only seemed natural to bring that element into it. I didn't consciously try to do it. It was just naturally that's what I did. It just happened. Yeah, yeah, it happened. One thing I was super conscious of from the beginning is that if you're going to work in the first person, which most of them, you know, if you're relating personal experiences, you're going to be left with that, right, by default. If you're going to work with that, it, it's very easy for the stuff to get self-absorbed or like the me, myself, and I show. You're just bound by self. You just, it, the stuff is so narcissistically wound up, right? So I always, always, always tried to avoid that by looking at what, whatever universal or commonality was at play, where it wasn't like, oh, okay, I have an exclusive on the this material. How did that relate to everybody around me, right? right. And so, what, what are some of those commonalities for you, like regret or love or? Yeah, those are, I mean, those are the emotional commonalities, but I think the much more fundamental commonalities have to do with the fact that we're just here, present and, and alive and conscious. Mm-hmm. And that's an endless ocean of discovery. And from that level, then you get the feelings and the thoughts and the sensations and, you know, the meanings and all of that stuff, right? Right. But I, I always thought that the real mojo and the real fireworks and the real thunder and lightning and power was always just in the barest possible experiential quotient that you could... It wasn't thinking about climbing, it wasn't writing poetry about it, it wasn't discussing meaning... It just, was doing it. Right, stripped down living. Stripped down yeah. to nothing. Yeah. You know, just get up there and see what, what that's like. And then then go ahead and write all you want about it, right? Yeah. But it starts there. Right. Yeah, I, and I, I value that. You taking what is largely an entire sport down those paths of reflection, and I think we'll, in time we'll be very fine-tuned and grateful for that. So yeah, I hope so. I think we owe you a big yeah. debt of gratitude. You know, I just don't... My skin crawls to think anytime i'm tempted to go into something that's remotely precious or or spiritual even though i guess by some definition that's a that's a huge part of my life but that usually has a limited kind of definition about what it's supposed to be 
And I don't think there is. I don't think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. Like I've had all kinds of different experiences being out in the outdoors, far and beyond just going climbing, right? Yeah. And not all of them have been touchy feely, you know. Woo woo. Yeah. Well, or or poetic or, you know, gracious or I mean, some of it's just the opposite. Yeah. You know, I've had to work on the rescue team and recover bodies. You know, and that's part of it too. Right. Right. So. And that's so a I, non-discriminatory I, thing. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the tendency is we want to want to push this thing over into something that's that's cosmetically arty, you know, or right. And maybe that's just or how sophisticated or whatever. And I said, man, just go for the whole, you know, the whole mofo, man. Right. The whole catastrophe, as as has been said. That's what we're in. Yeah. That's the truth of it. Yeah. You know. You've referenced key times in your life with the phrase, "There are moments that make a life." What are the moments that have made yours? I mean, I came from, I was a nobody that came from no place in particular, right? And it was the same with everybody that I started climbing with. And we started climbing in an area, Talkies and Suicide, which is a very historical place because the Yosemite pioneers had all broken in there. Royal Robbins, you know, T.M. Herbert, Von Chenard, Tom Frost, Joe Fitchin, you know, Chuck Welts, and many, many, Bob Camps, Mark Powell. They all, they're all, that's, that was their home crag, right? And so they established all of these similar routes there, including the first multi-pitch 5-9 route in Open Book, and or at least that's what it's how it's defined. You know, I grew up at a really historically significant place, and when we started there, we were so overmatched by that stuff, scared us so much. We were so young, you know, like 16. Got up in that stuff, it was like, wow, are we ever going to be able to, you know, join this pantheon of heroes and, but we got good real quick. You know, we bouldered a lot. We had areas where we could boulder, and you could get technically really good. If you're bouldering all the time, we were driven, had a lot of endless energy, and we had each other. And, you know, we got this sort of momentum going, and we, and we got good, real, you know, pretty quick. You know, we are doing 5'10 within six months, which is, and there wasn't a lot of people climbing 5'10 back then. So all of a sudden, we started picking off the aid routes that our heroes had done. We started free climbing them, right? And there was this one this 800-foot thing called a vampire, right? And this a crazy big wall location and what have you. And, you know, we weren't very experienced then. And we, Mike Graham, Rick Akamazo, myself, Richard Harrison, I can't remember who else, managed to free climb this thing, right? And when I got to the top of that, I realized it wasn't really at the top. Maybe driving home or the day after, I'm like, wow, that was significant, right? And that's when I knew, oh, we're going to make some noise here in this sport. I, I'd always wanted to, but that's when I knew. Mm-hmm. I know we're doing this, right? And then, you know, other times when we, when we topped out after climbing, free climbing Astroman or the top, you know, climbing the nose. Because those are, nose in a day, those are big things for the community. Community rallied around us when those things were happening. And it was like, a, like we were we were carrying the flag for everybody that was up there that was had their life invested heavily you know, we're carrying the flag for all of those people. And it could have been me. It could have been any number of other people. It was just incidentally, I got in on a couple of really good ones. But it was a it was a tribal kind of celebration thing. And that, and those were, you know, big things. And then, you know, you have kids, you have... And then there's things in my career. As you say, what, how about your non-climbing life? Yeah. Yeah, the, the I was lucky with the writing thing because I, you know, I look back on the early stuff and I was really immature. And I had so much old, you know, British and English literature stuffed in my head without consciously making an effort i ended up aping the style of those you know cool ridge and now you know i mean it was everybody does that i suppose you just read so much of it you're gonna i remember finished undergraduate school in lit and 
I was living with Lynn Hill up in Las Vegas. We were climbing in the Red Rocks all the time. I had a, had a night or swing shift job working in a gas managing a gas station. I had the, I did that in high school, so I knew how how to do that job. And this is, you know, it was my pretty mindless once you know, just simple accounting and making sure things were stocked and how to deal with people and all that. And I had a lot of free time because uh, at nine o'clock or ten o'clock at night, there were not a lot of people coming in. So I, I, I would always work on writing stories, right? And I just ripped off this one story about soloing with Backer, right? Called The Only Blasphemy. I didn't really even think about it. I wrote it pretty quick. And Backpacker Magazine wanted to do, they, have, they had a final page in their magazine what was some like sort of hair-raising encounter kind of thing. I think it was called Conclusions. So I wrote this thing up. I, I think I must, I, I bet you I handed it in in handwritten, you know, sent it off. And it caused this huge stir. It got picked up by a Reader's Digest of all things. It was a story of the year from them and Royal Rama said it was the best piece of, best client, shorts climbing story that I ever read. And I was like, what? You know, like purely a fluke. It just, I hit the right story at the right time and, and somehow or another got the right delivery on it and it sort of worked. So I, all of a sudden, that thing became a career game changer for me, right? And that that was one of those things that really was significant, right? And, you know, there was other things that happened, but you know, meeting certain people, you know, sort of fluky things that happened, getting, you know, expeditions that you get through, just landmark stuff in anybody's life. But if you look back, most people can look back at their life and go, okay, this is where things changed because of this. Like I changed tracks and this was significant enough whether you know whether it be good or bad and a lot of the things that initially happened that were that were bad turned out to be good you know because it put me in another direction and i would have never gone which they commonly tend to do in life yeah exactly if you can capitalize on it and you know anyway you're 66 years old yeah would you say you've navigated aging with grace and i ask that because that's something i think yeah, about i think so you know? i think pretty pretty well i mean i've eliminated most of not all but most of things that were hasten dying like change my diet around stay active try to stay stay around young people doing interesting things so yeah what would you say I don't really think about it you know yeah that's fair i mean i do and somewhat but i don't being old per se is not something you can it's not you can't really fathom it because you don't feel different than i do i did when i was 20 like physically I do, mm-hmm. but my, my experience, you're, if you have all your marbles, your actual visceral experience of hearing and my sense of me and all the rest of, you know, there's a continuity with that. And I'm sure it's evolved or changed over the years or devolved, but uh, your life doesn't seem different on the most fundamental level. So the idea that, oh, you're older now, it's almost like a concept. You're reminded of it daily because I'm not physically, I don't have the energy or I can't, you know, perform. I still go climbing all the time when I can't. I got to warm up and, you know, yada, yada. But it, it doesn't seem like, like being out of Joshua Tree now doesn't seem any different than when I was out there when I was 15. She's got to be pretty rad. I don't know if anybody's experience is that much different, you know? So the age thing almost seems like a concept in, in certain ways. It's construct. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know it's real. So what are you the most proud of in your life? Probably my two daughters. Yeah, that's probably the, I mean, they just did they're just great people and they're doing interesting things, right? And, and meaningful things. The older one's a pediatrician. She's just an angel, you know? And the younger one's a diva. Hard to be around her sometime, but she, you know, she's really, she's a good-hearted person too and doing really crazy 
difficult things being a petro engineer. You know, woman in that world, not many of them. Right. Right. So you know, she's a go getter. So yeah, there, there. I look at them and I go, this is. I'm leaving the world better than I arrived just because of them. So that, that's a great thing. Yeah, it's anyone with children. Yeah. Of the twenty whatever five guests we've recorded with to this point, no one has ever had a different answer. Oh yeah. Everyone is fit, which I think is awesome. And, yeah. and, and in my eyes, probably the way it should be. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, compared to, you know, all the so-called, you know, groundbreaking stuff I might've done compared to what they're doing and how interesting it is. I, I couldn't even, I could care less about the stuff I've, you know, I've done. I mean, it's irrelevant in many ways. That, and that's why I don't talk about, uh, if I'm doing presentations, I never talk about the stuff we did. I talk about what's going on right now. I think that's very telling, you know, and that, when you said that, you know, it's, it's funny because everyone wants to come to your shows and talk about the seventies. Yeah. Back in the days. Yeah. I already went through that, man. Once is enough. Right. I don't need to go back to that. Right. I mean, the most interesting part of my life is right now. This I, moment. I, I, yeah. And what's, what I'm going to do when I get home mm-hmm. and who, you know, I got a girlfriend meeting in the airport and we're going to go get something to eat. And then who knows what, you know, that's what I look forward to. Right. Or meeting you or meeting your wife who's a dancer or, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of new stuff. Yeah. Right? Life's always navigating yeah, exactly where we should be. Do you have regrets in your life? Oh, yeah. A bunch. What's your view of regrets? My view of regrets is I don't judge myself at, at, for making mistakes. I look at it in like the, I'm not a Vipassana person, but they have a great way of looking at, Zen does too, but it's, and that is when you bungle things that you it's not you were bad. You didn't bring sufficient skill to it. And I bungled a ton of things. Are you kidding? I bungled more than I've done things right. I'm, I know that's the case, right? Oh, I've been open to learning. I've been open to being influenced by people that, that inherently are, are just, by nature, people that I could learn from a lot. You know, I have re- you know deep emotional regrets about uh, all kinds of different things, but... I catch myself and say, I just didn't have skill. I'm not a mean-spirited person by nature. So it's not like I, I set out to do harm in situations. Who I'm does? not violent. I never picked on people. I never beat up on women. I didn't do, I didn't do a bunch of things that, that, are, that we were learning about people do, which you're sort of shocked and shouldn't be shocked because it's been going on forever. You know, I stayed out of that. Never been arrested you know, haven't caused physical harm. It's inevitable if, you, if you're not real mature and real conscious, and I wasn't for many years, it's inevitable that people are going to look back and say, oh, he was the guy that did this, that made me feel this way, right? Or, or you know, so I know I've been that guy in a lot of circumstances. Well, we all have. Yeah, exactly. But instead of saying, okay, I did, it was from a lurking darkness inside me i look I, I try to look at it as though you know i really didn't have any skill then man i just didn't have it right it you needed know? it needed to happen in that point in your life to yeah. be instructional yeah i needed a little more, more mentoring or i needed to learn things or i wasn't conscious of what what the fallout of the damage was i was causing right mm-hmm. yeah so well, and i feel like if you're not fucking up you're not trying hard enough you know whether it's interpersonal relationships yeah or in your physical pursuit the other thing is you you know everything's not going to work out it doesn't necessarily mean you fucked up either yeah just it is yeah it, i mean that's just how it goes things dead end you know you can you have relationships with people and not all of them are meant to last forever 
and or are possible or you might love somebody dearly it doesn't mean you're supposed to be with them right maybe that you know maybe you're not compatible in that way career-wise the biggest regret i have is that i didn't recognize where where i should put my energy so i tried a lot of writing projects where which were not uh what well, didn't really suit my that weren't playing into my strengths right I wish I would have recognized earlier what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. Like, I was just out of stubbornness. I said, you know, I know I'm not good at doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Part of the process. Yeah. But, I mean, that stubbornness, I could I could have done, lived my life probably a little more, or a lot more fluidly had I not stubbornly dug in and tried to wrangle things down. That, I just, that would have been better for me to just leave, leave, you know, leave them. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's like you know you're not gonna get you're not gonna you're not gonna be doing this right with an enormous amount of work. You might be able to work yourself up to where you're good at it. You're never gonna be great. Forget it. You they're, know, they're just lies. leave that shit alone. Right. Go over here and do you know something else. What comes naturally to you. Right. My last question, which yeah. we always finish with every guest with. Ultimately, how does John Long want to be remembered when it's said and done? Hmm. Yeah, I never thought about that. I only ask because when I was sick, yeah, they thought I might have had leukemia or yeah, lymphoma yeah. or some gnarly shit that could kill me. It opened my eyes and made me realize, like, if you disappear tomorrow, yeah. Well, one is it even legitimate to consider how you'd be remembered, or is it too narcissistic? No, no. I I think I think the limiting. Yeah, I'm thinking it's pretty easy to answer that, actually, now that I think about it. I think most of the time, the limiting factor for people not experiencing their life fully is fear, right? And if whatever I've done or whatever I've written has lessened fear in people's lives and has enabled them to maybe at least attempt or try things they, they otherwise would have been frozen or or petrified or or wouldn't have considered owing to fear if it enabled anybody to make one step in the direction of their dreams and then that's that would be great for me a life well lived yeah well i mean just just don't don't let the fear determine what what you you know what you can do or what you what you'd like to do or whatever you're not going to get rid of it but i mean just push on man i guarantee you if you if any adventure top end adventure athlete in here if you got right down to it and ask them how many times have you been terrified there it would be unlimited right and the fact is they somehow or another managed to move forward in spite of it right so if if you can take anything away from adventure sports it's that right you're going to be frightened but you know so what just go right on yeah, yeah. well and i think you've accomplished that and you know kid because you have inspired 50 years of climbers so i think we owe you a debt of of gratitude but well it did you know it did me a lot more probably than it did everybody else just to be you know listened to that's a big big deal you know for a writer right you know so and, and i've had i've been fortunate in that it's worked both ways yeah you know hopefully maybe people have gotten some small amount of entertainment and insight out of it but uh it's been really good to me for right. me too i think that's an understatement people have gotten an immense amount out of it so well, that's we, great thank you yeah you bet <laughs> you said in the car ride up you know we don't know each other from adam outside of me reading about you as a as a personality so we're really grateful for the, the yeah. time and the open conversation Nam is another person actually 
aren't we all? Yeah, exactly. But you're still John Long. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our production staff is a team of three. Myself, Brendan Madigan, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and producer Kristen Hanna Madigan. The music of season three of Afterglow is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to check them out on Instagram to enjoy more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you like what we are doing, please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. The last episode of Season 3 drops on Monday, January 13th, with extreme skiing icon Glenn Plake.